Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney, and this is Caffeinated Crimes. I feel like I said my hi differently this time. Like, it, it didn't roll. Hi. Mm-hmm. It was kind of, hi. Hi, I'm Jacqueline. Like, it didn't roll off my tongue. You know, hmm. you know, I'm surprised that neither of us have said, like, the wrong name yet. Or, like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. Have you guys ever... Maybe this is just my anxiety, but you know, when you call someone for like a work purpose or like an appointment or something where you're like calling a specific person and you like say their name over and over to make sure that you get it right. And then Mm -hmm. you almost say, hi, I'm their name instead of your name. Has anyone else ever done that? I've never, I don't think I've ever actually done it, but I've almost done it plenty of times. I think usually as a general rule of thumb, I try to avoid saying anyone's name at all costs in any <laughs> format. So just be like, you know, I don't know. I'm, I know I'm going to get a name wrong. Just like, hey, this is Courtney. How are you? Hope well, you're the right person. Yeah. Like I, I have to call like, spe- like I call people like back a lot, which helps because mm-hmm. I have their name from a voicemail. So I know how to pronounce their name. But like I'm calling like a house or like a business where I need to ask for like a specific person. So, you know, yeah. like it's not the, the person who answers the phone is usually not who I need to speak to. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask to speak to that person. So, um, yeah. I'm usually calling yeah. courthouses where I'm just like, Hey, this is Courtney with <laughs> insert my building, my company name. I'm not going to say it on the pod. Um, <laughs> I just can ask you a question. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Because I know so. there's certain people who, like, always ask people's name and, like, repeat the name, like, repeatedly, mm-hmm. you know? Like, scares me too much. <laughs> I'm, I'm too much of a fuck-up to do that, I'll be honest. So, even if I've um, known you for, like, years, I'm just not going to call you by your name because it might come out wrong. <laughs> I I have that fear of, like, spelling names wrong. So, like, mm-hmm. like if I'm, like texting someone that I've known forever and I'm like saying something about their spouse I'm like going on Facebook and making sure that I'm spelling their name correctly and I'm like I've I've known you for a decade I've mm-hmm. known your spouse for like six years but I'm gonna double check that I'm spelling this name correctly because I don't know I, I think I did have that thing. when I got you a wedding gift is I was like let me go to Facebook and make sure I'm spelling her name right because what if I spell it wrong <laughs> Because it's such a fear of, like, what if I fuck it up? <laughs> For, like, people's, like, uh, baby names and things mm-hmm. that I'm like, I know this name, but I'm going to double check because I'm just so afraid of spelling it wrong. I also get really annoyed when people email me for work purposes and spell my name wrong because my name is literally in my email address. Mm-hmm. Like, this email got to me, so you typed in my email address correctly, so why can't you spell my name correctly? I don't I don't. And that's it. why... I don't put people's name. I go, good afternoon, comma, <laughs> da, 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 da. or good morning, comma, because I just don't trust myself. <laughs> oh, man. I love these conversations where we have no idea where it's going when we start talking and it just comes on out. Um, but this is going to be a longer episode. We are here in live podcast times recording back to back. So I say we just go ahead and jump in unless you have anything mm-hmm. else to, to bullshit about because I don't. Um, I'm bullshitted out, you know? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think I have anything. Yeah, I used it all last week. Um, so either you're very disappointed because you're completely riveted by our banter, or you're like, <laughs> thank fucking God, shut the fuck up and get to the case. So either way, we're probably making somebody happy. You and know? somebody sad. I mean, that's life, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's how it usually works. You can't please everyone. Um, 
So our sources for today are an article from KY3, some information from charlieproject.org, and also the Springfield 3 podcast. So they definitely go in very, very Mm -hmm. in-depth, very detailed if you want to listen to that as well. And we're just going to give an overview here. On June 7th, 1992, Susie Streeter, Cheryl Levitt, and Stacey McCall vanished from their home in Springfield, Missouri, without a trace. Their remains have never been found, and no one has been charged with their disappearance. So, Cheryl Elizabeth Levitt was born on November 1st, 1944. Um, Her maiden name was Williams, and she had bleach blonde hair and brown eyes. She was only... I'm sorry, it's not funny. I'm, I was reading she was only about five feet tall, and I'm still talking about when she was born. And so I'm just like... Oh. <laughs> yeah, there clearly, wasn't much detail about her early life. So clearly as we an go adult, she was five feet tall, not as a newborn. Um, she also smoked heavily, hopefully not as an infant. She also didn't have bleach blonde hair when she was an infant. That's what, I don't think she was bleaching her hair as an infant. You know, I mean, it was the 40s, so I wouldn't be yeah, surprised. Um, So she did marry a man named Brent Streeter, and they had two children, Bart and Suzanne, who went by Susie. Um, Susie was born on March 9th, 1973. Cheryl and Brent did divorce shortly after Susie's birth, and Cheryl moved with Susie and Bart to Springfield shortly after the divorce. Um, In 1992, Cheryl and Susie were living in the 1700 block of East Delmar Street in Springfield, Missouri. Cheryl was working at New Attitudes Hair Salon on West Sunshine Street. Um, she did have about 250 clients and was considered a model employee. She was a pretty private person, um, but she was really close to her daughter Susie, and she was described to be very friendly and welcoming to all of Susie's friends. So Susie was employed at a local movie theater and planned to enroll in cosmetology school in the fall. Um, she did have difficulty reading, so a lot of people wonder if like, maybe she was dyslexic. Um, She never lived with her father and rarely spoke to him or her stepfather. She was very petite, only about 5'2", and had bleach blonde shoulder-length hair and big brown eyes. She had a very narrow face and a small tumor on her lip that mostly looked like she was, like, smoking or maybe had, like, a gumball in her mouth, like, just... Smirking. Smirking. Yep, not smoking. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm pretty sure when I read this the first time, I also read it as smoking, and that makes no sense. I don't know. (laughs) I'm pulling a, a Courtney and Ron Burgundy over here where I'm just reading mm-hmm. what's on here. Whew, okay. Except you're not. You're, you're editing yeah. it. <laughs> just, you're making false edits. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so when editing, a lot of this has been cut out, but Jacqueline is having a little bit trouble saying the next two sentences, so I'm going to go ahead and take that on for her. So Susie and her friend Stacy McCall had graduated from Kickapoo High School during the evening of June 6, 1992. So a little fun fact about Kickapoo High School with its funny name. <laughs> um, that is actually where Brad Pitt went to high school. So kind of a famous high school here because Brad Pitt, guys. I mean, yeah, imagine just like, yeah, I went to high school with Brad Pitt at Kickapoo. Well, I don't know if Susie and Stacey went to high school with him, but he did go there. <laughs> no, no, no. No, just anyone else who mm-hmm. went to Kickapoo, just being, you know, looking back on their days at Kickapoo with Brad Pitt. I'm so sorry, guys. This is incredibly disrespectful. Okay. 
So Stacy and Susie were close in age. Stacy was born on April 23rd, 1974. She had dark blonde hair, blue eyes, freckles, and a dimple in her chin. Um, Stacy planned to attend Southwest Missouri State University in the fall of 1992. Um, she was employed as a receptionist and secretary at Springfield Gymnastics at the time of her disappearance, and she also modeled wedding gowns for the Total Bride in the Brentwood Center. She did date occasionally, but did not have a boyfriend at the time of graduation. Um, her mom, Janice McCall, spoke with the podcast that we mentioned in the beginning about her daughter and said that she was outgoing and always on the move. She was always helping others and having fun. Um, Stacy and Susie had been friends in elementary school, but had grown apart some. And Janice said they didn't really hang out together much until about three to four weeks before graduation. Um, Stacy had gone out to eat the night of her graduation with her family to celebrate. So Cheryl spent the early part of the evening having dinner with her daughter, and Susie and Stacy planned to spend the night at a hotel in Branson, Missouri. So instead, they decided to stay at another friend's house in Battlefield, and Susie called Cheryl at around 10.30 p.m. to discuss their plans and how they weren't driving to Branson that night, and instead planned to stay at her friend Janelle's house. So she's letting her know, you know, hey, here's the change in plans, mm -hmm. here's what we're doing now. So Cheryl called her friend Val around 11.15 p.m. and told her friend that she was painting a chest of drawers and didn't mention anything like being off at the house. So 11 o'clock at night, things seemed normal. She's just painting some drawers. Um, Susie and Stacy attended a few parties that night, and they returned to Cheryl's house around 2.15 a.m. on June 7th after deciding that the friend's house was too crowded because Janelle had family in town. Um, they did plan to meet other friends at Whitewater Amusement Park in Branson later that day, and they had driven separate cars back to Cheryl's house, um, but it's not sure whether or not Cheryl knew that they made it home, because again, it's two in the morning, so she may have already mm -hmm. been in bed by the time they arrived. The neighbors did not report hearing or seeing anything suspicious that night. Um, Janelle called the house at around 7.30 the next morning since the three had plans to go to Whitewater together, but no one answered. Um, she said that she called multiple times, still no answer, so she went over there around 9 in the morning with her boyfriend Mike, and the three cars were there, but no one answered the door. So they're like, well, maybe they went for a walk, maybe they walked to breakfast, like, things look normal, mm -hmm. they're just not answering. So another one of Susie's friends came by as well because they were going to Whitewater and couldn't get a hold of her, and she did say that it was odd when she got to the house because Susie's car wasn't parked in its normal spot. So she said that she was a creature of habit and always parked in the same spot, um, and she did wonder if she parked there because another car was there beside her mother's. Um, and a few more friends also dropped by when they couldn't get a hold of them. It was reported that the door was left wide open, and Stacy's family reported the disappearance to authorities the evening of June 7th. So by this time, they're realizing something's off here, like these three mm -hmm. are just gone. Um, all three women's personal belongings, including jewelry, clothing, wallets, and purses, were discovered in the house. Um, Cheryl's bed did appear to have been slept in, and her glasses were by her bed with her book turned over. So it looks like she may have been disturbed while she was reading in bed. The family's Yorkshire Terrier, Cinnamon, was still inside the house and appeared to be anxious, and all of Cheryl's personal items were untouched and the TV was turned on. 
Um, there was some makeup wipes in the trash and Susie and Stacy's clothes were folded. So it appeared that maybe they were like in the middle of getting ready for bed. Um, there was no sign of a struggle and no physical evidence at the house. There was a shattered porch light. Um, so police believed that there could have been some evidence with that, but Mike had cleaned it up, not really thinking that it was significant because, mm-hmm. you know, he just sees a mess and he's trying to help out and clear it up. Um, so the shards were thrown away. So any evidence with that would be gone. Um, Cheryl and Susie's cigarettes and lighters were also left in the house. All three of the women's purses were placed together on the stairs. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of interesting. It's not really where you normally put your purse. Um, It seemed pretty clear that the motive was not robbery, though, because all of their belongings were in there. Um, Cheryl actually had about $900 in her wallet and it was still inside. Susie's blinds in her room were pulled apart like someone had been like looking outside. So maybe she like heard something and she's looking, what did she see? Um, Janelle said that at one point while she was in the house, the phone rang and she answered. Um, There was a man making crude comments and so she just hung up um, because she's like, this is just a prank call. Um, It did ring two more times and did go to voicemail. So Stacy's mom, Janice, later heard this voicemail and so did the police when they got there. Um, So this might sound kind of like weird with like cleaning up the mess and like ignoring the calls and thinking it's nothing, but this is just like a small town that hasn't really dealt with stuff like this. So they're not thinking that anything sinister has happened. They're just Mm -hmm. like, where did they go? Like we have to find them. They're not thinking like they've been kidnapped, you know? And it's like the 90s, like people prank call like all the time. Yeah. And you're just thinking like, oh, like something might have hit, you know, like I don't want people to step in glass or I don't want them to step in glass when they come home. Like I'll clean it up. Mm -hmm. Like you're today's mind of us all true crime people are like, no, you don't touch anything. But like back then they were like, there was no cell phone. So that it wasn't like they were like worried they were like i mean it's used to not hearing from people and mm-hmm. it's just kind of what it is like <laughs> yeah exactly like if they decided to like go do something like we just wouldn't know you know mm-hmm. um so police do say that the crime scene was tainted with at least 20 or so loved ones who came by um the house after they were reported missing because no one really realized the seriousness of the situation until it had been 24 hours. Um, police even left a, do- a note on the door asking them to call the police department to cancel the missing persons report when they came home. So clearly they're not thinking like they're yeah. actually missing. They're just like, oh, hey, like your loved one said you're missing. Here's, mm-hmm. you know, let us know when you come back. What? <laughs> like, yeah, because and, and like uh, Stacy's mom, Janice, was saying like, yeah, like, they were locking up the house, and she's like, how are they supposed to get in? And they were like, yeah, like, that's the point. Like, they'll find a phone, and they'll call us, because, like, mm-hmm. the police were like, they're coming back, because they were like, yeah. people, like, just don't go missing around here. Like, they're coming back. It'll be fine. <laughs> Newsflash, it won't yeah. be fine. <laughs> mm, yeah, spoiler. Um, and obviously, we know, like, the first 48 hours is the most important in any kind of investigation like this, so, like, clearly, this is a big misstep. Um Again, just out of, like, ignorance and lack of experience with the situation. And it's the 90s. I mean, the 90s need yeah. to go to jail in general. We see this all the time. <laughs> OJ 90s Simpson. are wild. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So, on June 8th, the police officially started searching. Um, they did get a search warrant to go in the house, and they did provide an extensive search of the surrounding areas, but there were just no clues as to where the women were. Um, They called local hospitals, jails, even the morgues, including the surrounding counties, um, and a lot of the community came out to help in the search as well. So hunting season was also coming up. So Janice was like begging hunters and hikers to please keep an eye out for anything suspicious, and police are working extended shifts trying to find these three women. 
So a few tips came in, but nothing really panned out. Um, one fisherman reported that he found a blonde hair in his bait. So divers went to the area, but it turned out to just be like a kind of moss that looked like a blonde hair. Um, there was another tip of a foul smell, possibly decomposition in like a wooded area, but it turned out to be a dead coyote. Another report of a trash bag with possibly something dead inside in another county, but it was just a fish. So tons of reports like this, like people mm -hmm. are really trying to help and they're like really looking for anything suspicious, but nothing is coming of these tips. So a witness did report observing a woman matching Susie's description driving an older model moss green Dodge van later in the day on June 7th. Um, she said the driver had a birthmark on her cheek, which Susie did, but it usually was covered up with makeup. And she claimed that the woman she saw was terrified and an unseen male told her don't do anything stupid. Um, so the witness did not contact police until a few days later. And a green van had been stolen the same day that the women disappeared. Another witness said that a van pulled into her driveway late that night and Susie was driving and she heard a man say, back up and get the hell out of here. And then they left. Um, so police interviewed her extensively and even used hypnosis to see if she could remember more, but she couldn't. Additional witnesses reported seeing the Dodge van in different areas of Springfield, and a man told police he saw the blonde female sitting in the driver's seat in the parking lot of a local grocery store. He said he wrote down the license plate number on a newspaper because he thought the vehicle seemed suspicious. Unfortunately, he threw away the newspaper before contacting police, so didn't really help there. Um, they did later hypnotize him to see if he could remember, but he could only remember the first three digits. Um, so some people reported this van as brown, and so it just kind of got muddled. And while a lot of witnesses do reference this car, there's no, like, definite connection to this van and the women's disappearances. Mm -hmm. um, however, at this time, like, this green van is really, like, the only thing that they have to go off of. So, like, the community is like, we have to find this green van. Like, this is our only, you know, lead at this point. Yeah, like, I would have hated to have been driving, like, a green van, like, at this time. Because yeah. it's like, you're just going to get reported and... <laughs> Yeah, like, that's the thing, like, people, like, saw this and reported it, but it's, like, there's no actual physical connection, like, nothing else besides, like, eyewitness testimony, and it's, like, we don't have anything. Yeah, and I mean, we know how unreliable eyewitness testimony is, and these people are, like, oh, yeah, like, it looked like Susie, but, like, it was just a young blonde girl, like, you know, like, mm -hmm. a lot of people could be, could be mistaken as looking like Susie, and then, like, oh, like, this man told her to, like, back the hell up, and I'm, like, how did you hear that couple. is my question. Yeah. Like, the things, I was, like, how did you hear that? But, I mean, I don't know. Because that is, that is very specific, but the first thing my mind went to was just, like, oh, this couple's, like, arguing, and, like, mm -hmm. she's, like, turning around, and he's, like, get the hell out of this driveway, like, what are you doing? Hurry up, let's go, yeah. like, you know, I mean... But obviously, when something like this happens, you're, like, looking for anything out of the ordinary. So things like this are going to pop up and be mm -hmm. relevant to you. So a server at George's Steakhouse, which was one of Cheryl's favorite restaurants and a 24-hour diner, reported seeing her between 1 and 3 a.m. on June 7th. Um, the restaurant is less than a mile from their house, and the server said that Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy all arrived and then departed together. Um, she said Susie seemed intoxicated as they were leaving, and Cheryl was trying to calm her down. She also said they were there with three men. So, investigators have never confirmed this sighting, and it's unclear whether this was, like, before or after their disappearance. Like, 
did they did these men take them from the house and then go to this mm-hmm. restaurant was this before they went back home um other witnesses reported hearing a woman scream and the squeal of tires in eastern green county missouri during the early hours of june 7th and officials searched searched this area but found no evidence related to the case So another man came forward saying he saw the women that night. Um, Steve Thompson was a 24-year-old gas station attendant, and during fact-checking, the times are a little bit off, but this could be from the media misreporting. Again, the 90s, we do see that a lot. Um, Maybe Steve was miscalculating, or maybe it wasn't the women at all. But he did say that he saw them the night of graduation, and they left in separate cars. He said Stacy was with a man around early 30s with dark stringy hair, um, thin hair, and a mustache. And Steve said that the man popped his head in the door and said that he forgot to buy cigarettes. And he said the girls talked about meeting up that night and then left in opposite directions. Then he claims that at 2.15 a.m., Cheryl came in and asked him if he'd seen the girls. He said that she seemed nervous and then left. Um, but the friends that Stacy and Susie were with said that they never went to the gas station that night. So mm-hmm. the times that he's claiming to have seen them, the friends who, like, were confirmed with them are like, no, we weren't there then. So, yeah, again, did like- this happen... Janelle's mom like remembers them being at her house around 2 a.m. Yeah. being like we're leaving you know so it's like yeah what is this it's kind of weird yeah so it's like you know did this happen just at a different time that you know or did it not happen at all who knows with a lot of these stories you know yeah So a composite sketch of an unidentified man with long hair and a full beard was released in the days after the disappearance. Um, The individual was allegedly spotted near Cheryl and Susie's house in early June 1992. Um, So police don't know if he was involved. Um, An anonymous caller phoned America's Most Wanted hotline after the program profiled the women's cases in late December 1992. Um, The caller was disconnected before he could speak to Springfield investigators, but police believe that he did have vital information, but despite public pleas for assistance, he never phoned in again. So police started looking into Cheryl's background to try to get any kind of clues, like, is this something personal related to her? Like, what what are we working with here? Mm -hmm. Um, So Cheryl and Susie had moved to the area from Seattle, Washington in 1980. Um, Like we mentioned before, she had divorced her husband Brent shortly after Susie was born. Um, And she had told friends at the time that Brent said that they should divorce, but like continue living together. So then her, um, her and Susie would qualify for welfare assistance. However, Cheryl decided to just end the relationship and moved into an apartment complex with Susie and her son Bart for about six months. Um, She was able to live there for free in exchange for doing repair work around the complex. And Cheryl and Susie moved to the house on East Delmar Street in April 1992, two months before their disappearances. Um, Cheryl had been married to her third husband, Don Levitt, at the time. Sometime before this, she'd also been married to a man named Fred. Um, Don and Cheryl did divorce in 1989. So this divorce impacted her finances and she elected to move into a smaller residence. So Dawn's creditors were asking her to pay Dawn's debts after the divorce. So she had hired an attorney to locate him without any success. Um, So rumors did come out about her being addicted to drugs or a drug dealer, but a lot of people who knew her are like, this is just completely untrue. This is just Mm -hmm. people speculating and just throwing shit out there to see what sticks. Small town rumors. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And Cheryl's former boss was shocked when people said this and were like, 
was like, there's no way that this is true. And none of these details or where she worked really helped provide any clues either. So again, mm-hmm. they're digging into her background to try to find something that could help, but not, not really a whole lot here. Yeah, and several officers actually um, like accused the former chief of police of imp- impending their investigation um, in the late 1990s. Um, and there was even a rumor that the chief of police dismissed a suspect based on a conversation with a suspect at McDonald's and not full investigation. So they were saying, like, the chief of police just took a suspect out to McDonald's, like, ate a hamburger with him and was like, nah, he's good. He's fine. (laughs) So not really great. Not great. Um, Others dispute this and said there was, like, little evidence available in the case from the onset. So, like, other people are like, no, chief of police did nothing wrong. There was just no evidence to go on. So it kind of looks like even some investigators are, like, fighting with each other about what happened in this case. Mm -hmm. So, again, as you've heard, there is not much evidence and even fewer leads in this case. Um, But there have been quite a few suspects and theories that police and the community of Springfield take quite seriously. So first, let's talk about Steve Garrison. So he is serving 40 years in prison for raping, sodomizing, and terrorizing a female college student in Springfield in 1993. Um, And this was just a year after these women went missing. And Steve Garrison ended up telling the police that a friend confessed to him at a party that he had kidnapped and killed the women. So police use this information to serve three search warrants in Webster County, Missouri, to try and find these women's bodies. Um, Unfortunately, the bodies were not found. Um, And so police had brought Steve from prison while investigating this lead, and he had escaped their custody and brutalized a woman again. So. How how does this happen so often? (laughs) Like, yeah, I mean, maybe we just hear about every single one that happens. So it seems like a lot. But what? Yeah, so he did break into a house um, and rape the woman, and he was convicted for this rape. Um, So obviously, like, he's done this multiple times. Like, this is a habitual offender here. Um, However, his public defender for the trial of the second rape um, did not like him, and he really believed he would not have been smart enough to get away with the murder of the three women. Like, he was like, this dude is an idiot. There's no way he could (laughs) overpower kill and hide three women's bodies and like get away with it Mm -hmm. um yeah however he still could be a suspect Mm -hmm. um another suspect is larry Dwayne hall so he is a serial killer who is suspected of killing between 39 and 54 women 14 of which he either confessed to or bodies have been found and he is the main suspect So Larry was a very violent man, clearly, and in 1987, Larry started his crime spree and was known to, during his murder, commit acts of necrophilia, strangling, stalking, rape, and mutilation. So, like, literally the the most disgusting of the disgusting. Yeah. He was living with his parents in Indiana, about eight hours from Springfield, but Larry and his twin brother Gary traveled to Springfield often for Civil War reenactments, so they were in this area like quite often, and I think one of the battlefields was very close to where Cheryl and Susie's home was. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is currently serving life in prison for kidnapping. He's actually never been charged for murder, which is kind of crazy since he's suspected of killing like up to 54 women. Um, yeah. So Larry and Steve are kind of both, like, good suspects because they're clearly capable, like, clearly. 
Um, but there's really no evidence linking them to this woman. It's more like here are two men who did shitty things and could have been in that area. Mm-hmm. So another suspect is Gerald Carnahan. Car- So on June 18th, 1985, Jackie Johns disappeared. So Jackie was a 20-year-old waitress from Nixa, Missouri. And so Nixa is only a few minutes outside of Springfield. And when her disappearance was brought to national attention, police and the community began searching heavily. So Jackie's car was found in a grocery store parking lot with her bloody clothes in the back seat. And four days later, two fishermen found her body in Lake Springfield. Um, So, of course, Gerald Carahan was a lead suspect in this case. Um, He was brought in for questioning because witnesses had seen his car at the same place where Jackie was last seen. And he did admit to knowing Jackie. So, law enforcement believed he was responsible, but they had no evidence to charge him. And then in 1993, he was convicted of trying to kidnap an 18-year-old girl in Springfield and sentenced to two years in prison. Um, And at this point, Jackie's case also went cold. Um, And it wasn't until August 2007, which is 22 years after she was murdered, when an officer found DNA evidence that could link Gerald to this crime. Um, So obviously, Gerald got away with murder for 22 years and tried to kidnap a girl again in 1993. Like, again, very capable of doing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Again... Seems like a good suspect as well, but not a lot of strong evidence. Law enforcement also kind of believe it's unlikely that he would have been able to kidnap the three women on his own and successfully hide his bodies. Because they do say, like, with Jackie's case, like, he was quite messy. Like, he didn't hide it very Mm -hmm. well. Um, So they're like, how could he do that? And then have this case with three women with no evidence whatsoever. Like, it seems kind of odd that he could do that. And, I mean, Jackie was before, so it is possible that he, like, learned from his mm-hmm. mistakes, and so he knew. But, again, that's a big jump from one, one to three with so many mistakes to three with, like, nothing. So, you know. I think that's the big thing, too, with this case is it's, like, could it be one person overtaking three women? Like, that's... And, like, three grown women. Mm-hmm. It's not, like... I mean, they're, you know, 18, 17, 18, but, like, they're not children. Like, they're full-sized humans, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, this next suspect is one of the biggest suspects. Um, Bart, in an interview, said for the longest time he really believed this was the person responsible. I mean, a lot of people believe it was this man. Again, we have no evidence, though, but one of our biggest ones here. And his name is Robert Craig Cox. So, Robert had been spending time in a Texas prison on robbery charges that were unrelated. Um, And Robert also had a prior incident in Florida as well. So, on December 30th, 1979, 19-year-old Sharon Zellers was leaving work at Walt Disney World. Sharon always told her parents her whereabouts and was diligent about calling them, which I feel like I see a trend here, like... Susie and Stacy both did this as well, where they were, like, calling their moms, mm-hmm. like, I'm leaving here. I'm not staying, like, calling and telling them, which I think is why. Yeah. Especially for Janice, she was like, something's wrong, because my daughter calls me. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And at the end of Sharon's shift, she called her parents and said she was meeting friends for breakfast and promised to call when she returned from the restaurant, but she never did. And four days later, her abandoned car was found in an orange grove. And the following day, her body was discovered fully submerged in a sewage station. 
Um, so Sharon's body was identified by dental records because it was pretty badly decomposed. Um, and she had died from blunt force trauma to the head. And it had been a very, very brutal attack. It was very, very brutal. Um, mm-hmm. So she had been kidnapped, raped, and murdered. And on the same night Sharon disappeared, 19-year-old Robert Craig Cox came back to a hotel he was staying at with his parents. And his mom actually called security because he came back like with blood all around his face and his mouth. And part of his tongue had been severed, and he was unable to talk. Um... Okay. So he's arrested for Sharon's attack, and they do believe that Sharon had likely bit off a piece of his tongue during the attack, like fighting him off. Um, but he claimed... You go, Sharon. Yeah, you go, Sharon. Um, he's claiming <laughs> that his injuries were from a local fight at a, like a skating rink where he bit his own tongue after he was hit. Mm, I mean, <laughs> it is possible to bite your own tongue very hard, but... But I feel like it's more likely that someone else with the adrenaline and the intent to harm you bit your tongue for it to be that Yeah, severe. and they were saying, too, like, the way it was severed wasn't like you biting your own tongue. Like, it seemed, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much research there is on tongue injuries, <laughs> but they said, like, it almost we seemed. look into that. <laughs> They're like, it almost seemed impossible that, like, you could bite your own tongue and make this injury. Like, it was more kind of like it had been pulled from the outside off, I know, sorry, but <laughs> a piece had been pulled from the outside rather than if you're in your own mouth biting down, you know? I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Like, it, I feel like the injury would look different mm-hmm. depending on... I'm sitting here trying to, like, imagine biting my own tongue and positioning my tongue in different ways. To... Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, pretty gross thinking. <laughs> yeah. So, even more so, the hotel Robert was staying at was 300 feet from where Sharon's car was found. So, pretty close here. Detectives also found three loose hairs in the victim's car that were consistent with Robert's hair. And they found type O positive blood, which was Robert's blood type, but not Sharon's. Um, And a military type boot print was found in the car. And Robert was in the army during this time and wearing the exact same shoe when he was being treated for his wounds. So they were like, these shoes look basically identical. Mm -hmm. Um, So at this part, it gets a little confusing to me exactly what happened because it seemed like he went to trial at this time, but was not convicted. Um, And I don't know if maybe they meant to say like, they present it to a grand jury and it wasn't indicted because there is a trial later. But if he wasn't convicted, I think that would be double jeopardy. So I think there's some miscommunication I'm not hearing in my research. But just mm-hmm. so you know that he was not convicted at this time. <laughs> um, and in August 1985, a young woman in California was kidnapped by Robert who had been following her. And Robert also attacked another woman who had given him a ride from the airport. Um, He was convicted and sentenced to nine years for these kidnappings. And at this point is when they brought Robert back to Florida in 1998. So at this trial, Robert was convicted and sentenced to death for Sharon's murder. However, the Florida Supreme Court reversed the conviction, saying there was not enough evidence. So he was just a free man. Hmm. So. Okay. Yep. Um, Robert was living in Springfield at the time of the women's disappearance. Um, He'd actually grown up in Springfield and moved back in 1991 after being released from prison. So straight from prison to Springfield. 
And he had worked with Stacy's father at a local car dealership, but there's no indication that they really like knew each other. I mean, car dealership, you have a lot of different departments, so it, they might not have known each other at all, but they could have also cra- crossed paths. I mean, Stacy could have come in to see her father. Robert could have seen her. Like Things like mm-hmm. that could have happened. Um, he said he had an alibi and that he was at church with his girlfriend. I, I didn't really get that because I was like, um, <laughs> at 2 a.m.? <laughs> but okay. Um, uh, okay. You know those you know those all-night churches? I mean, we've, we've all been there. Mm-hmm. Right? But later yeah. when he was in prison in Texas, his girlfriend also, ex-girlfriend at this point, recanted her alibi with him. So it was a lie anyway. Um, and Robert told a journalist that he knew the women had been murdered and buried near Cheryl's home, but the bodies would never be discovered. Um, he also did tell police um, that he would say, like, he would tell them what happened to the women after his mother died. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. Um, so police don't really know if, like, Robert's actually involved, like, if he actually killed them, buried them, and is, like, going to tell this, or if he's just trying to make false statements for attention, like... Mm-hmm. You know, because they're like, this seems pretty like, I mean, a lot of people think it's him, especially with that comment of yeah. like, I'll tell you what happened to them after my mom dies. <laughs> like, Yeah. Um, but again, he's never been formally charged because there really is just no evidence against him. Um, so these are all kind of suspects that did not have a direct relation to the women. So there were a few that did know the women. Um, So there was Susie's ex-boyfriend, Dustin Reckla, and his friends, Michael Clay and Joseph Riddle. So while Susie and Dustin were dating, him, Joseph, and Michael were arrested for vandalism on February 21st, 1992. So Michael, Dustin, and Joseph were accused of breaking into a mausoleum and stealing gold fillings from a corpse's mouth. That's a lot. That's a lot to That's unpack a lot. here. Um, Susie thought the same thing because she broke up with Dustin. Um, and she actually provided I mean, a statement to the police like about the incident. Okay. Okay. Let's just... I got to back up here a minute. So grave robbing is, is one thing, but grave robbing and like getting the fillings out of the corpse's mouth... Going like, into like is, a corpse's mouth. That just puts you on, like, a whole new level. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, grave robbing is wrong, but I feel like there's a distinction between people who would just rob jewelry that you're buried with for whatever reason Mm -hmm. and getting into a mouth and pulling out fillings and teeth. Like, that's – there's a big jump there, I feel like. Yeah. It's pretty gross. Um, Mm. Susie was also nervous um, in the few months before her disappearance, like, if she would have to testify in court about it. Um, And following this lead, acquaintances said they heard Dustin and Michael, like, saying they wish Susie was dead. And, like, in particular, Michael saying, I wish all three of the women were dead. Um, But I don't really know if this is true also. Because I don't know why he would also group Cheryl and Stacy into it at this point. You know? Like, I don't know if this is one of those statements that, like, he did make or... After the fact, people are like, oh, well, you know, Dustin was saying, I hope Susie's dead. And, oh, he said all three of them. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. Kind of embellishing on what, yeah. But it could have also been a statement. I don't know. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So Dustin and Michael were called in for questioning, but let go with no evidence. Um, they've never been charged, but still kind of considered suspects a little bit. I mean, basically I mean, also, everyone is at this point. <laughs> yeah. But, like, there's some, like, they're teenage boys. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, physically, yes, they could probably, you know, overpower, if there's multiple of them, they could overpower these women. But are you smart enough to leave no clues to dispose yeah. of their bodies in a way that they're never found? Like, 
Do you have that kind of mental capacity? Because I've met teenage boys. I don't think so either, and... because I think the house would be ransacked too. I think they would have been yeah. like, I'm going to be like a dick and ruin the house, or I'm going to throw stuff around, or I'm going to make it look like a robbery, or I think they would have done things that would have led to their like being found, but also would have like looked weird. And if you're going into graves and digging out gold fillings of mouths, you're not going to leave $900 in cash behind no. in Cheryl's purse. <laughs> like, no. if, if that's what you do for money, you're not going to leave this easy money behind. Yeah, and this is oh, the 90s. Like, so. they probably had, like, only cash in this house, too. Yeah. yeah. And you just left it all behind. So like, that's... I don't think so. Mm-mm. So, Susie's brother, Bart, was considered a suspect for, for a while, um, but many reported that he was very distraught the weeks after. I mean, your mother and your sister go missing. Yeah. Um, so, Bart had returned to Springfield in fall 1991 after a bad breakup, um, and he wanted to make it kind of right with his mom and sister. Like, he'd been like, I've been kind of living, like, kind of a bad path. Like, I'm going to come back to family, mm-hmm. get my shit together, you know. Um, and he did pass a polygraph test. Um, he has had some arrests since then, including in February 2019. He was arrested on suspicion of public intoxication, disorderly conduct, and attempted false imprisonment from an unrelated incident in Tennessee. But he's still not considered a suspect. I mean, a lot of people say, too, like, is this just the ripple effect of your family members going yeah. missing and you don't know why? And he didn't have a close relationship with his father. So your only mm-hmm. family goes missing. Like, of course, you're probably going to drink. Um, like, yeah, kind of the ripple. Effect. And I mean, how many people I'm sure, you know, lots of people that have charges for oh, stuff like yeah. this that you just don't know about, you know? So I mean, when you're mm-hmm. really digging into someone's personal life, like you can find anything that would make them seem suspicious, but I'm sure more people than you know have, like, yeah. public intoxication, like, trespassing, like, these random, you know, And that's the thing, too, charges. like, public intox disorderly conduct, you could just be outside yelling at someone on the street and maybe trying to, mm-hmm. like, prevent them from walking away, and that's how you get a false imprisonment charge. Like, it's literally, yeah. like, it's not exactly. as cut and dry as it seems. No. So Susie also had a previous relationship that was abusive and she had had a 10 day restraining order against him in the past. Um, Many reported that she was scared of him. He did take a polygraph pass and test. He said he was alone with that night and he was just alone. He said, no one can verify that because I was alone. Um, And he's never really been taken seriously as a suspect. Mm -hmm. So those are our suspects. Now, what are some theories? Because we love a theory, right? (laughs) Um, So one of the early investigators theorized that the kidnapper used cinnamon to attack the women. Um, Cinnamon's the dog, not like the spice. Just so everyone remembers. It's been a while. Just so everyone remembers. (laughs) Good good idea. Good idea. I I was trying to figure out, like, like, did they throw this dog at them to... Why would they attack their own owner? But maybe I should just let you keep going. Yeah, yeah. So... Cinnamon stayed outside in the backyard often, so they thought maybe the kidnapper took Cinnamon out of their backyard, knocked on the door, and was like, hey, your dog was running down the street. I'm bringing back Mm -hmm. your dog. Um, You know, your dog got out. I'm trying to be a hero here and bring your dog back. And he thought that maybe just one of the women would have opened the door and then been overpowered, and that's how he got inside. Again, it's just a theory. There's really no, like, concrete evidence, like... Some people say it was kind of weird Cinnamon was inside the house when they showed up and not outside. So they were like, maybe this could be a thing. Um, people mm-hmm. also are saying alien abduction or UFOs because it literally <laughs> is they disappeared out of thin air. Like, yeah. just gone. 
So one of the more popular theories in Springfield is that the women are buried in a parking lot and there's two possible parking lots that people speculate between. Um, one being a store called PFI Western Store, and this opened a new building in 1993, so there would have been some, like, construction at that time. And the second parking lot is Cox South Hospital Parking Garage, um, and this is kind of the most infamous theory here. In 2007, a local writer hired a consulting engineer who used ground-penetrating radar to scan the Cox South Hospital Parking Garage, and the man running it said his machine picked up three distinct objects consistent to a grave. Um, and a petition does stand to dig up the garage to look. However, this structure wasn't there until two years after the women went missing. So it didn't go into construction until two years later. So that would have been like so their bodies would have had to have been somewhere in the time when everyone mm -hmm. was looking for them. Yeah. And, um you know, where would this perpetrator have kept their bodies and then brought their bodies to an active construction site with all these, you know, lights and everything. Yeah. Um, but Cox South Hospital did offer to let them dig it up. They were like, if you guys need to, you know, prove this is not true, like, go ahead. Um, but Springfield Police mm -hmm. did look into the theory and they find it not credible. They said the tip came from a psychic, so they don't really take it seriously. And I guess, you know, ground penetrating radar isn't necessarily an exact science to maybe spend the money to dig this up. And they never requested mm -hmm. to destroy the concrete. I feel like at this point, just do it. If the hospital's letting you and you have that, like, just do it. And even if it's not these three women, if, like, you think this could be a grave, wouldn't you want to find out who mm -hmm. it is? Because, I mean, clearly that's a great place to hide a body, but... It probably isn't these three it's probably someone who was murdered two years later when this was under construction and they had the perfect way to yeah get rid of them you know yeah so like if it is you know there are objects that are like a grave it's like just dig it up or like dude like why not yeah get your own if you don't believe this expert like get your own expert because especially now in 2022 like ground penetrating radars come a long way from 2007 like just try it yeah. you know like yeah there was another report that a few teenagers around this time went to Camp Winoka. Um, locals call this the Girl Scouts camp. Um, so these teenagers were in the woods and they said they saw three men bring three women in a car. And the teenagers said they hid and so the men didn't see them. And they said the women were begging and screaming and he claimed to hear one killed and other, the other two raped and beaten. And then he said there was silence and he heard them being loaded into the van. And they said they stayed in the woods for like four hours until the van left. And they just like didn't want to be seen. Um, and so they wrote about this later in life and said how it haunted them. I mean, it was like 15 years later, this guy was writing this being like, it's haunted me. I heard this. I saw this. Um, and actually one of the teenagers that was in the woods took his own life shortly after this happened. Wow. Um, so it is possible this theory has some legs. Um, law enforcement do think it seems like, I mean, something could have happened, but this statement doesn't provide any further evidence, and it also doesn't help find out who did it either. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of hard. Um, you know, it sounds like a good theory, but again, there's just no evidence and there's no, like, nothing that can help lead the case along. Yeah. So this case seems very, very odd because clearly robbery is not a motive. Um, so it seems like, 
Either the perpetrator was just wanting a victim or targeting one of the women. But it's odd because Susie and Stacy were not supposed to be there that night. You know, mm-hmm. they had originally planned to be at a hotel and then they planned to be at friends. Like their plans changed all night. Mm-hmm. Um, so was maybe the perpetrator targeting Susie? I mean, Cheryl. Um, did he follow Susie and Stacy back to the house? Like, did he see them out at a party or see them somewhere and follow them back? Um, but again, like we looked into Cheryl and it didn't really seem like she had any like enemies, anyone who would want to attack her. So it's like if they were targeting her, like why? Like who is it? You know, who does she have beef with? Because we can't find this person. Yeah, like that should be, you would think, fairly easy to find something. And also if someone is just targeting Cheryl and they arrive and find three people instead of one, are you still be going to be able to kidnap, murder, and dispose of these women without your plan going awry when you have mm-hmm. three times the people to deal with than you were planning on? You know, like, would you be able to handle that situation if you were not prepared for Susie and Stacy to be there as well? Yeah, and I think, like, with one of, like, Susie's friends being, like, her car was parked in a weird spot and thinking maybe someone else was at the house, like, when they showed up, mm-hmm. but it's, like you were both there like you would have walked in like it just it's very very odd and like if someone wasn't there when they showed up and someone comes later it's like you see three cars in the driveway like this looks like a pretty Mm -hmm. like occupied house um yeah and also if like they you know if the theory is that they walked in on someone already there something already happening you know you said that their clothes were folded there was like makeup remover Mm -hmm. in the trash can so it seems like you know, they had time to start getting ready for bed. Like, they weren't, like, ambushed as soon as they walked in. So, yeah, that seems kind of off, too, you know? Yeah, and it's obviously clear, too, that, like, these women were, like, kidnapped and taken somewhere. Like, there's no evidence yeah. in the house of anything. So it's like, what happened? Like, where did they go? And I think that's why kind of the Girl Scout camp theory gets some, like, traction among people. Because it's like, okay, well, here they're being taken somewhere. And that's why there's mm-hmm. no evidence. But it's also just, like how did they randomly choose these three women and how did they do all this and hide their bodies and never been found? Are there any theories that they like ran away to start a new life? Like, obviously that's not very likely, but I feel like in cases like this, people usually say something like that. So have you, did you see anything like that? I think people are like, it's a possibility, but I think most people were like with how close Stacy was to her family and starting college and that Stacy and Susie weren't that close. Like maybe if it was Cheryl and Susie, it would be like, maybe, Mm -hmm. but like. And more, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anything's impossible, but I think the fact that they left all their money, they left all their cars. It's like, you're going to start a new life with nothing. I think that's kind of why people are like... walk away. Yeah. Yeah. Like Bart Bart said the next day, he was like, my sister's graduation cake was uneaten in the fridge. You know what I'm saying? Like, we have all this and it's like, they just disappeared. Yeah. Like I definitely, you know, I don't think that that's Mm -hmm. possible, but I know a lot of times you see that. So didn't know if that was something that you would come across. It's kind of hopeful because you're like, I hope they're alive somewhere. But I think with Stacy in the mix, it's like, why would she run away too? Would definitely be more believable if it was just mother and daughter. Yeah. So Cheryl and Susie were both legally declared dead in 1997 by their families Um, And a bench was dedicated to them in Victims Memorial Garden in Springfield's Phelps Grove Park the same year. 
And in 2002, investigators went to a concrete company in Webster County after two women told police there was a man who drove a green van, which looks similar to the one described in the case. Again, like even almost like 10 years later, people are still like, a green van, it's him. Yeah, stuck on that green van. So cadaver dogs were brought out, brought in to hit on three spots, and bones were recovered. However, they were determined to be too old to belong to the women. Mm-hmm. And in April 2003, tips lead investigators to farmland south of Castland, and they dug two large holes but only found two possible pieces of evidence. It was possible blood and the section um, of a green vehicle. So investigators sent the blood evidence for testing, but the results were inconclusive, probably because it was just so old Mm -hmm. and buried. So, very few leads have emerged in recent years, but they keep pushing for any new information. So, in 2020, a former reporter, Brian Brown, and his father, Alan Brown, published a book inspired by the cold case called Gone in the Night, the story of the Springfield Three, and it explores the detail of the case through fiction, So I don't know if they're, like, telling actual details and then, like, embellishing on some other stuff. Um, And a former local of Springfield, Anne Rodrigue Jones, released a podcast called The Springfield Three, which we used heavily in this research. It is an amazing podcast. She has interviews with locals, family members, and friends, including Bart um, Streeter. So she has a whole episode with him, investigators. She's a local as well, so Mm. she remembers this case. Um, So it's kind of that good, like, you know, like, you're one of the locals. You know, it's, like, kind of different than, like, us covering this versus, like, growing up remembering it. So please do go listen to that. Way more in-depth. Way more in-depth about the theories. All of that. Um, So their case is still unsolved. And there is a reward fund of $42,000 for any information leading to location and prosecution of the persons responsible. So if you do have any information about this case, please contact the Springfield Police Department at 417-864-1810. And you can also reach out to the Springfield Crime Stoppers, who I think keep everything anonymous. And that is 417-869-8477. And that is the disappearance of Susie Streeter, Cheryl Levitt, and Stacey McCall. That's just wild. Like, just no, no evidence, no real leads. I mean, like, some possible, but not anything that's like, you know. Mm-hmm. All you have is an anxious dog in the house and a broken, yeah. like, uh, light, porch light. And it's like, how do you kidnap three women with nothing? Yeah, like, with like no sense. And like the way the purses were placed too, yeah. kind of look like they put them there. Like, so odd. And I think they bring up in the podcast a lot too, is that like Springfield is like small town vibes mm-hmm. and like your neighbors are kind of nosy and you kind of know what's going on. Yeah. So it's like, how did neighbors hear nothing? Like, did the women... I mean, maybe a perpetrator could have come and pulled a gun and, like, mm-hmm. coerced them into, you know, a car or whatever. But it's like, how does all this happen with nothing? No evidence, no bodies, no real suspects. And, like, I get it is, like, in the middle of the night, but it's like your neighbors don't hear any, like, mm-hmm. like could that be completely silent? Like, could you kidnap three women into a vehicle? Like, your vehicle's going to make noise. Like, it's just bizarre. Yeah. Just very bizarre. So, Courtney, what is your perk of the week? 
Okay, my pick of the week is Kevin and I recently decided to take on a huge undertaking, and that was we watched all the Marvel movies in release order. <laughs> so I thought you were going to say you were getting married, because that is a big undertaking. A <laughs> little bit bigger, maybe, but... Um, <laughs> anyway, just, yeah. just a small, slight bit. But yeah, that is quite the... Um, that's quite the challenge. So we'd both seen like a few movies here or there, you know, like we watched a few of them when they came out, especially the ones that were talked about more, but neither of us had seen like all of them in release order. Um, so we started that a little while back. Um, we're on to phase four and we're into like the TV show portion. So we're almost, we're so close wow. to being done. Um, and of course, right when we get close, I see a new Spider-Man Spoiler. That's a huge no. fucking spoiler. And I'm pissed. Oh, but sad. it's okay. I didn't tell, I didn't tell Kevin because he'll be devastated if I tell him <laughs> this. Um, so we're hoping to watch that soon so that I can mm. avoid more spoilers. Um, but yeah, that, that is, is my fun, part though. of the week. I, I always said I didn't really like superhero movies. And there were some of them that I just really didn't like as much. But overall, it was fun to watch and kind of see how all the movies tie in together mm-hmm. and i mean it was fun it was a fun watch um so yeah if you have a shit ton of time which kevin and i don't really have so we made it work somehow <laughs> um <laughs> just squeeze it in there squeeze it in there um so yeah that is my perk of the week jacqueline what is your perk of the week so my perk of the week is the book that i just finished reading that i did borrow from courtney um so it's called which I, you know, messed up. The, I thought it was a different name the whole time I was reading it. So that's why I'm, that's why I'm chuckling. Um, but it's called How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America by Clint Smith. Um, so it's a very, very good book. Um, it is, of course, heavy, but it's not, it, it has some like hope in it too, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, it, it obviously is a very dark subject, um, but it is, a man who is intertwining his personal history with the matter, with his family members, um, his experiences growing up. He interviews them as well as going to different places across the country um, that do have, you know, associations with slavery. Um, but it's written very well. Mm-hmm. It's it like I said, it mixes all of those. It mixes conversations that he has with people, um, which I really just enjoy. Like you know, interviews and conversations with people to like tell a story versus just telling the story you know what I mean Mm -hmm. um so yeah it was a very very good book highly recommend it very educational um I learned a lot and it was a really enjoyable read too even though it is such a heavy subject matter and I would strongly recommend everyone go listen to the episode of unlocking us um with Brene Brown that she did with him Mm -hmm. around the time the book came out um it was amazing hearing them talk about it and him kind of talk about like his different experiences while writing it and all this stuff. Um, just, it was one of my favorite episodes, which is why I immediately went and bought the book. So I was like, I need this <laughs> book cause I love this man. Um, but yeah. it's an amazing book. It's so good. Probably one of my favorite reads of 2021, definitely number one yeah. nonfiction read of 2021. For sure. Like, such a good book. Like, I went into it like, oh, yeah, like, this is going to be interesting. But I'm like, oh, it's going to be kind of dry because, I mean, it's like a book about, like, slavery and his, and not that, not dry and, like, boring, but just, like, I thought it would take me some time to get through it, you know, mm-hmm. but I, like, couldn't put it down. Like, I was just, like, flying through it. It definitely um, puts it on a more personal level into, mm-hmm. like, today's decades. Like, a lot of times. Yeah. And I think this is why, like, so many people are like, oh, it happened so long ago. And, like, you read books and stuff. But, like, this is, like... 
here it is today, how it still affects, you know, here's mm-hmm. how the plantations turned into the jails, turned into the today, Absolutely. like the whole history. And it's just, it's very captivating. It's compl- it's so mind blowing and opening and just wonderful. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm going to switch it up this week because maybe once we start saying like where you can find us, you guys turn us off because you know where you can find us. So wait, stop. Don't turn us off yet. If you have not already, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars is great. Um, put some information in there too, because you know, why not just say cool, good podcast, like Mm -hmm. them. You don't have to put anything long or great. Just like two words, like whatever. Um, But do that. Send us a screenshot because once we reach 50 of those, which we are so very close, and I know we say that every week, but we just (laughs) cannot get these last like three to four reviews Mm -hmm. because apparently they can be deleted. Not sure how that happened. Anyway, so definitely go do that because once we reach 50 of those, we will draw someone to win a pin, a sticker, and a $10 gift card to the coffee shop of your choice. Hopefully gift cards are not obsolete by the time that happens. I don't know. Could be (laughs) six years from now. Who knows what the world holds. So hopefully you're still here and you heard that. Thank you. Yeah, and um, you can also find us to tell us about what your favorite Marvel movie is, um, your favorite book you've read recently. If you've read that book, your thoughts, et cetera, et cetera, you know the drill. Um, you can find us mm-hmm. on Instagram at Caffeinated Crimes Pod, on Twitter at Caff Crimes Pod, that's C A F F Crimes Pod, Facebook, Caffeinated Crimes Podcast, YouTube, Caffeinated Crimes Podcast, TikTok, Caffeinated Crimes. Email caffeinatedcrimespod at gmail.com. And most importantly to us, because it has to do with money, you can go to patreon.com slash caffeinatedcrimes. You can subscribe for as little as $3, uh, $5, different tiers there, and you can get Discord, bonus episodes, Google Hangouts, a pin and a sticker at some levels if you're sick of waiting for this damn Apple Reviews giveaway. (laughs) We are too. (laughs) So many options, and we're constantly trying to expand on what we do on Patreon, so suggestions are welcome as well. Um, But please do that. Um, And again, please review us on Apple Reviews. I'm just going to say it like 50 more times. (laughs) Anyway, in the meantime, go have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime. Mm -hmm.